Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. I'm having so much more fun now. I have let them show me how to live their way. This is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 229. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Freaky Magazine. I contribute material to every issue, so give it a try. Hey, kids. Have you read Freaky? The magazine of weird humor for freaks like you. Freaky Magazine is a way-out collection of weirdo comics, kooky gags, photo funnies, social satire, and surreal collage. Fifty-two pages of insanity in the tradition of magazines of yore like Cracked, Plop, and Zap. Special offer for Fun Ideas listeners, get a free sample copy in the mail, made of smelly newsprint and smudgy ink the old-fashioned way. Just message your mailing address to the slow poisoner at gmail.com that's the slow poisoner at gmail.com while supplies last you remember them from your childhood half for the friendly ghost richie rich hot stuff baby huey sad sack and little audrey you read them in comic books and saw them on television and in the movies now you can read about how they and other Harvey comic characters were created in two great books from Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions, The Best of Harveyville Fun Times and The Harvey Comic Companion. Both are available from Amazon. The Companion is also available from Fair Manor Media. They are available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by PopOptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. I plan to go on Charles F. Rosene's Magical History Tour in 2024, and here is Charles to talk about it. Hey, hey, this is Charles Rosene, sometime guest here on the Fun Ideas podcast. Have you ever thought of taking a Beatles tour to Liverpool? Well, I host and organize the Magical History Tour every summer, www.liverpooltours.com. But I'm here to tell you about two other things. My books. Yes, Mark isn't the only author. I've recently published the book of Top Ten Beatles Lists, where 64 celebrities gave their top ten favorite Beatles-themed lists with reasons why. 
all kind of fun stuff. Please check it out, www.bookoftop10beatleslists.com. It's the follow-up to www.bookoftop10horrorlists.com, where a hundred celebrities gave their favorite horror lists. Enjoy the upcoming show, and thank you for listening to my ad. In Fun Ideas Productions news, progress is being made on publishing my upcoming Turtles and Mad books. Hopefully they will be out by the end of 2023 or the beginning of 2024. My latest books that are published include my books on Pac-Man, the stars of Walt Disney Productions, the revised second edition of my Monkeys book with Michael A. Ventrella called Long Title, and the TTV Scrapbook. You can buy them all on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or directly from Bear Manor Media. If you'd like a signed book, contact me at funideas.mark at gmail.com or purchase your book through my listings on eBay. I'm still working on my TV Cartoons at Time Forgot book, as well as articles about the Harvey Implosion and on Archie's Mr. Weatherby. On today's show, we have part two of our three-part Beatles author series with an author who has written British Invasion 64, the year that changed rock and roll forever. Here he is, Gene Popa. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with another Fun Ideas podcast. And today I have yet another Beatles author because they're they're coming in droves right now, uh, which is a great thing because I love the Beatles and I love to read everybody's new Beatle book because usually it covers a topic in the topic in a different way. And so today I have Gene Popa. How are you, sir? I'm very good. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Good. And I always ask, since I'm in Oregon, where are you uh, coming from? I am in North Carolina. Ah, okay. All right. Well, the inevitable question. Well, first, I'll mention the book. Uh, you've written a book called British Invasion 64. Right. And there it is. And the inevitable question is, why did you write a book about the Beatles? Well, I should say it's not simply about the Beatles, but of course, the British Invasion only happened because of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. We actually cover a host of British artists that came over in that year. And essentially, when I decided to become a full-time writer, my decision was I want to write the books that I want to read that aren't out there yet. <laughs> and there really has not been a good book about the British invasion ever. There's been some books that cover it, but they're really not available right now these days. So mm-hmm. I thought it's about time somebody did one. Might as well be me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess this would kind of reveal your age, but I have to ask, were you around when the British invasion of 64 was happening or no? I fall just short of that. I was born in 1966. Okay. So, so you're like me. Okay. Because <laughs> I was saying, you know, if you have first-hand experience or if it's all, you know, retro, which is fine. Um, I've been a fan of, of the music of the 60s my entire life. So it really feels like I was a part of it. So. Mm-hmm. And um, why this topic? Yeah, I mean, there's no right or wrong topic about the Beatles. There's been every topic done under the sun. But you know, what intrigued you about this particular time in Beatles history and the British invasion with all the other groups? Well, honestly, I think like a lot of people, I just assumed that the British invasion was largely inevitable. It happened because it was meant to happen and nothing could stop it once it started. The more I dug into it, I discovered that wasn't the case. And it was really an instance of a lot of events falling into place some of them by people who had no relation to one another. And it literally was blind luck that things came together as they did. And there were powerful efforts to put a stop to it. And we think in retrospect, you know, hey, once the Beatles came, the Stones came, there was no stopping that. 
it very nearly was halted dead in its tracks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I uh, went through the book chapter by chapter, and I think you have one chapter where you're talking about uh, Alan Sherman's Pop Hates the Beatles. And, you know, I don't know if his personal opinion, uh, Alan Sherman's personal opinion was anti-Beatle, but certainly made for a fun record. But, <laughs> but I'm sure a lot of people had that sentiment. That's what I was going to say. Yes, yes. I, I don't think, other than uh, Hello, Mother, I Have a Father, I don't think a lot of kids were buying Alan Sherman records. Right. So he was playing towards the parents. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I never have figured out if he really was a Beatle fan or not, but he was probably too busy working on his own career to, to worry about that one way or the I other. I think he saw his competition. He had his own thing going. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, in the book, you have various chapters. Um, they're all over the map on subjects, but I mean, you know, to kind of generalize it, there's like a chapter kind of about the Dave Clark Five. Mm -hmm. There's kind of a chapter sort of about the animals. And um, what made you choose the British acts you chose? Primarily because they were the ones who had the greatest impact in that year. Not necessarily over the course of history. Some of these acts we don't really think about any longer. But at the time, they were major. And in some instances, like in Dave Clark Five, a lot of people expected they were going to eclipse the Beatles. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there are other acts like I do write about the Rolling Stones, but they weren't huge hit makers in 1964. Their, their fame yeah. came in 65 and after. Right. They were, they were a second tier group initially. Yeah. One thing I found that was handy in the book is at the end, you had a little discography of what happened in 64. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Rolling Stones put out a decent amount of product, like two albums and about six singles. But other than Time is on My Side, which they didn't even write, you know, it's like, I think everything else didn't really make a dent. I don't know, you know, <laughs> how, you know, I mean, it's like retro thinking like you. I, I don't know how successful they were in 64 itself it took like 1965 when satisfaction and the following hits that they wrote to kind of make them you know so the stones are probably better well known in 64 more for the attitude they projected yeah uh, as the journalist tom wolf said the beatles want to hold your hands but the rolling stones want to burn your town down <laughs> the bad boys of the british invasion they got a lot of press that way but it wasn't actually so much for their music. Mm -hmm. Now, how did some of these other groups fit in uh, that you talk about uh, throughout the book? Uh, well, in some cases, they had the good luck to be managed by Brian uh, Epstein, who was the manager of the Beatles. Mm -hmm. So that uh, instantly got American record companies interested in them. And there was a real rush in America once the Beatles hit big to grab whatever British artists were available and to put them out there. <laughs> Many didn't go anywhere, but a lot of them had huge hits. Some of them only in the calendar year 1964. They'd have four or five, six top 40 hits, and then you never heard from again from 65 onward. Mm -hmm. For that one brief year of their careers, they were kings of the mountain in America. Right. And uh, when we were choosing which groups to talk about, uh, was chart success really? What what was the criteria? I'll just go by that. Primarily chart success, um, okay. the impact they had on the U.S. market. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I talk about Chad and Jeremy, who were British artists, but they had one minor hit. I think they hit number 37 in 1963. Never hit the British charts again after that. 
they came to America in 1964 and started having top 40 hits for the next few years, or were big stars in America, but were completely unknown back home in Britain. Hmm. I actually didn't know that, yeah. you know, but that makes sense. You know, it's like uh, once the British invasion happened, you know, anybody with a, uh, an accent i can't say liverpudlian because some were from manchester some were from other er territories of uh, the colonies over the or not the colonies the united kingdom over there so you know we're the colonies <laughs> it seemed like every band with uh an accent out of dickens and ishkabibble hair got a record deal in america <laughs> and um you said chart success is the the reason you chose certain groups to talk about um were there any you just had to leave out for whatever reason? Not necessarily. Um, I pretty much hit everyone who I felt deserved it. I'd have liked to have written more about the Hollies, but the Hollies couldn't make a dent in America in 1964, which still baffles me. They did some great music in that year. Yeah. It wasn't until the end of 65 they started making the charts in America. And, of course, they became bigger in 67 and 68. Right. They should have been big, a big act in 64. And for some reason, they weren't. Yeah. That is kind of strange too, yeah. And and they even had hits into the seventies and stuff. So yeah. it's like you know, but then you know another one that I saw and you only had one lowly hit, and I'm surprised it even made it in there. But it was recorded at the end of the year, '64, is the Who's I can't explain, yes. which actually barely charted from what I remember. Uh, you know, even though it's like a a concert staple and classic mm -hmm. for them now, but uh, um, who have never been big top 40 stars in America. They've only yeah. hit the top 10 once. Mm -hmm. um, they've been huge in Britain from their very first song onwards. But mm -hmm. what makes them famous in America, of course, is the most raucous, loudest live act ever in rock and roll. And some really amazing conceptual albums they put out. And I think that's where their legend kind of rests. But uh, as far as top 40 artists, they never really clicked very well in America. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, using groups like that, you know, is like, I, you know, I haven't read completely through the book. So do you take the attitude throughout the book of, you know, kind of like just staying in 1964 and this is what's happening now? You don't like project and say, well, they'll do better later. Or do you kind of delve into that a little bit? In some instances, when I wrap up uh, a piece about an artist, I will occasionally say, and of course, they had greater fame in the next couple of years, or their success continued for a few years more. But by and large, I try and keep things in that time frame. Mm -hmm. And I should mention that 1964, as far as my book is concerned, isn't a 12-month period. It starts in January of 64 and kind of runs until May or June of 65. Because the first half year of 1965, while the music that came out was either recorded in 64 or released at the end of 64 and took a while to pick up steam. So essentially, 64 had a little six-month uh, gap at the end, a little coda. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of noticed that because I was wondering, how far is he going to go on this? You know, and so, like, I'm using the Beatles as an example. You yeah. include uh, Beatles 65, which, you know, has 65 in the title, but, you know, well, it was obviously recorded in 64. <laughs> I mean, uh, the British version was Beatles for sale, so, yeah. Uh, it's um just yes. an astounding job of, of butchering Beatles albums and stretching, you know, what were what seven or eight official releases in Britain into like 13 or 14 in America. Right. I mean, 
they milked that cow and they are still making millions off of it every year. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm I'm partial to the British releases, but there are a couple of exceptions. I, I don't know how to you know, rectify that in my mind, but you know, I still think Meet the Beatles is a fantastic debut album. You know, yeah. even though with the Beatles isn't bad, you know, but you know, you don't have any hit singles on it. And um says I want to hold your hand, which is hard to pass up. That's an amazing song. Right. So you know, I understand some of those compilations, but yeah, by the time I got to Beatles 65, and you don't cover it, but like Beatles Six and Yesterday and Today and those later ones, it's like, what's the point? You're pulling tracks off Revolver and making this uh revolver album a bad album and <laughs> putting the tracks on this other album just has leftover tracks from the past on it it's just really weird what they started doing eventually what was kind of a revelation to me when capital started releasing the beatles british albums on cd in the 1980s mm-hmm. was i like virtually every other american was conditioned to remember those songs a particular way not simply where they fall on the american album you know in your mind you're like okay this song is playing the next one is going to be this one right but they're very sound i hadn't realized that when Capitol put out the American versions, they put a wash of echo over everything. Yes. <laughs> so all the Beatles songs as I remember them are not how the Beatles recorded them. So mm-hmm. it took a while to retrain my brain to say, oh no, this is how it's supposed to sound. You have to thank Dave Dexter for that. <laughs> yes, we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of funny. One, I don't know if you've done this. It seems like everybody's done a compilation of their own at some point or another. Now with you know, infinite, you know, <laughs> you know, iTunes and all different things. You can just have any track in any order or whatever. But, you know, when you, in the days of burning a CD, I used to say, I want to make a CD of my favorite Beatles tracks. Yeah. And I think I narrowed it down to 20, which is hard to do. But um, in a couple of cases, I did exactly that. I, I use like... um the heavily echoed version of she's a woman because i always preferred that one compared to the one that is the british release because i just thought the echo really worked in that case but and i think it did because that was definitely a song that was a throwback to the 50s for the beatles they they were trying to evoke that era so the echo works great on that so do you have a similar situation like that where you're used to a, a u.s version and then when the cds came out you said Huh, this one's not good. I like that other one. <laughs> well, like I said, over time I've retrained my mind. Oh yeah. We are now. But um you know, there's something about those American releases that as much as they're bastard children, they're they're part of the tapestry of everything, right? I mean, it's you gotta love them. Mm-hmm. Um and I pull them out and I play them all the time on old vinyl. I still got my records from back in the day. Mm-hmm. So it's it's they'll always be a part of me, and I think a part of everyone's memories. Right, at least in the U.S. I always wonder about what people in Europe thought, and it's like they chopped up these albums terribly. <laughs> the sound stinks, you know. <laughs> the only instance where I think um, in Britain they thought the Americans got it right was, you know, in Britain um, the Magical Mystery Tour release was actually a double EP with only six oh, yeah. songs. Whereas in America they tacked on another half dozen songs, made it a full album. And after a couple of years in Britain, they said, that's a good idea. So they swapped out and they started releasing the American version in the UK. Yeah. It's kind of surprising in that case that they didn't do it that way, considering the British help and the British Hard Day's Night 
was exactly that. One side of movie songs, one side of just filler tracks, I guess, for lack of a better term. But you Well, know. <laughs> Hard Day's Night, the American version, was a result of a lawsuit between Capitol Records and United Artists. Um, mm -hmm. United Artists, of course, produced the film Hard Day's Night. Mm -hmm. They signed the Beatles to make a movie, expecting that it was going to flop, that nobody would want to see a Beatles movie. Yeah. They gave it an incredibly small budget, uh, so small that you know the director, Richard Lester, had to shoot it in black and white, couldn't afford to build any sets, had to actually go out and use actual locations, which helped make it a fantastic film. Mm -hmm. And United Artists did all this because they thought, even if the film's a flop, the soundtrack is going to sell a million copies, and we're going to make money off of it. Right. Well, Capital realized this as well, and they said, wait a minute, we have the exclusive rights to the Beatles in America. I don't care what contract you sign with Brian Epstein. <laughs> Epstein, pardon me, I want to get that right. Um, we have the rights and we're going to sue you and prevent you from releasing this album in the United States. So the lawyers met and they came to an agreement that the seven songs that appear in the movie, United Artists would get, and Capitol got the other six, which they very quickly uh, sprinkled into some of their other US only albums. Mm -hmm. um, to fill out the rest of the album, United Artists then went to George Martin, their producer, and said, can you do some instrumental versions of some of their songs and we'll pad out the album with that? Mm -hmm. And Martin did, and I'm sure it was a massive payday for him because that album was number one in the U.S. for 14 weeks. Yeah. And Martin went on to get nominated for an Oscar for mm -hmm. the soundtrack of the movie. So mm -hmm. all in all, I'd say he was very happy that Capitol made them take those songs off so he can get uh, that opportunity. Yeah. Interesting thing is uh, Capitol ended up with something new and a couple singles ended up putting out all the tracks anyway yes <laughs> you know it just wasn't actually, all on the same album which you know they rushed out something new which had their hard day's night soundtrack songs on it simultaneous with the hard day's night soundtrack they wanted to knock the soundtrack off the number one spot yeah. they couldn't do it so hard day's night was number one for 14 weeks and for nine weeks nine no 11 weeks something new was at the number two spot so they're, they're hanging in there, but they couldn't quite get the job done. Now, um, I, I'll i tell you my story first, and then I'll, I'll have you tell yours. Okay, so I became, I knew of the Beatles when I was a little kid, but um, I always say that I became a Beatles fan around 1977 and started collecting things there. Um, using Hard Day's Night as an example, um, I said, well, I want the movie soundtrack. You know, I don't know all these songs on something new. And I, I, I always thought something new is kind of a cheat. You know, it has the same song. So I didn't even buy that album for a long time. I might have not even bought it until after the CDs came out, you know, because it's just like, eh, you know, it's just the same album and a bunch of filler, you know, even okay. though the other one had like musical interludes and stuff like that. But um, I was more focused anyway on Sgt. Pepper Forward you know, trying to get the later albums, you know, typical of the time, you know, you want the most modern sounding stuff. And then I kind of went back and got the earlier stuff. So that's my kind of basic story of how I got started with the Beatles. How how did you kind of align yourself? Um, pretty much the same period of time. 77 was a bit of a Beatles boom. And that was because their contract with Capital and EMI finally expired. Mm -hmm. So the labels were free to put all these you know, the Beatles love songs and the Beatles rock and roll music, all these compilation albums that the Beatles had previously prevented them from releasing. And 
part and parcel with that was you saw a lot of Beatles books on the stands, a lot of Beatles magazines. Um, there was a bit of a, the class referred to phony Beatlemania in the song London Calling. That's mm -hmm. what it was referred to as, that they were trying to create new Beatlemania. Mm -hmm. But it caught my attention. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I actually really discovered the Beatles and got into them through a non-musical means. Mm -hmm. Marvel Comics put out the Beatles story. Yeah. <laughs> it was written by David Anthony Kraft and drawn by George Perez. Mm -hmm. And I read that and I said, these are the most amazing people in the world. I have to find out everything about them. Mm -hmm. And I went to uh, the local record store in town, Stardust Records, long gone, sadly. Mm. And I started buying with Meet the Beatles, Beatles' second album, Something New, Hard Day's Night. I started working my way through, and I bought a couple of books about the Beatles, about the Hunter Davis book. I got some at the library, and I just, the more I read and the more I listened, the more I realized that this is something truly profound. Mm -hmm. I don't want to elevate them to godhood, because they're definitely <laughs> ordinary flawed human beings but um there was something cosmic that touched on them at some point mm -hmm. uh, they were in the right place at the right time and what they did just a few short years i mean to this day we're still talking about them. right i'm always fascinated you know finding out how people got into it because it's, mm -hmm. especially when it's after they've broken up because in in my case my earliest memory of anything beatles really wasn't beatles um was i think the very first song i heard probably was yellow submarine but not by the beatles it was the muppets on sesame street yes, yes. and so um it was years later i go oh that's that same song that the muppets did you know and it's like but um and my way of getting into the beatles was similar where it was not something musical it was something outside of it um i had already become a monty python fan and uh, I was already a Saturday Night Live fan. My dad always was into comedy and stuff like that. Not so much into music. So um, any new comedy that was good, I was exposed to at a very young age. So uh, the story, and I've said this on this podcast before, so forgive me if I say it again, uh, is uh, Saturday Night Live episode with Eric Idle as the host. And uh, he comes out and he sings a song very badly of here comes the sun and so he strums the car Broom, here comes the sun you know and he starts yelling it out and then the the ongoing joke is this is so good eric we should save it for the end of the show you know and basically kind of get off the stage um and so i asked my parents what was the real song so like i didn't even know you know the way he was singing it and uh, my parents actually had Abbey Road. And so I started at the end of their career. And uh, uh, they said, oh, yeah, we have the album there. It's that one where the people are walking across the street called Abbey Road there. And I go, oh, OK. So I pull out the album, put on side two, play Here Comes the Sun. And I go, oh, I know this song. You know, it just didn't sound like anything when Eric Idle was doing it. No. So I said, hmm, what is what else is on this? So I flipped it over, started over side one. First songs come together. Oh, I know this song. Next song, something. Oh, I know this song. I don't know if I know Maxwell Silverhammer or, or whatever, but I did know Octopus's Garden and a couple others. And I go, and, and then the epiphany everybody always has when it comes to good albums by artists is that's not right. 
there can't be this many hits on an album. You know, an album is like one one or two great songs and the rest filler. And it didn't make sense to me. There was a lot of good songs on this all at once. Um, and so that kind of made me a Beatles fan. And, and, and then I asked my parents, do we have any other Beatle records? And, oh, we got the single for Help. And I go, oh, okay. And so I played Help and I go, oh, I know that song to it. And I flipped it over, I'm Down. Well, I didn't know that one, but I thought it was a cool song. And so I was kind of hooked. And so I wanted to get anything and everything, but I wasn't sure on song titles or anything. Yeah. So I, I, I started collecting the later ones because the later albums were all in color. And I remember getting Magical Mystery Tour, we just mentioned next, because it had a booklet. I figured if the songs suck, at least it has lots of nice pictures in it. <laughs> but Turns out I loved it, and then I got Sgt. Pepper shortly after that for similar reasons, like a nice, colorful album. I avoided the white album for quite a long time because it was just white, and it was a double album, very expensive. Yes. And I started getting the earlier ones, but I kind of jumped around. The it, the songs looked like uh, too many cover versions. I kind of avoided those, yeah. <laughs> you know, things like that. The nice yeah. thing is there are no bad Beatles albums. No. <laughs> but, the, the needle up and passed over, like... I don't need to hear Revolution Number Nine again. Good. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah. Uh, there's something to recommend on every single one of their albums, and particularly in the early years, <clears throat> that they put out so much music in such a short span of time. You know, we're in an era now where, you know, well, look at Adele. Her album's you know 19, 21, and now she's up to 30. It's not an album every year. No. It's yeah. four or five years between albums. And using her as an example, I always say, I'm waiting for your next album called 70. So, <laughs> and it, people who know her career get the joke, you know, and it's like, uh, anyway. But um, yeah, it is amazing when you look back on it because, you know, even now, granted, he's in his 80s and, you know, but, you know, it's, it's, even Paul doesn't put out an album any year. And Ringo, when he does put out albums, he's kind of done these EP things. So it kind of yeah. gives the semblance of doing one or two a year, but he's just doing shorter versions. It's amazing that they're putting out any new material at all at this age. But, you know, it's it just I noticed that that nobody's like motivated to put out more than one album a year, if that. You know, so. I think Paul could if he wanted to. I oh, I'm sure he could. I'm going to give him all the credit in the world. I saw him a couple of years ago live. And he played for two hours, nonstop, no breaks. Voice was strong throughout. Barely broke a sweat. Meanwhile, I was panting for breath walking back to my car in the parking lot. <laughs> I had exhausted myself doing that. So for a man at his age, to be able to do that is astonishing. Yeah. So happy he's still sharing his talents. Well, I, I don't have a recent Paul thing, but I know he's done those ma marathon concerts. I think the last time I saw him was in two, 2005. But uh, Ringo I saw in June, just a couple months ago. And the funny thing is similar as far as everybody's stamina. At the end of the concert, Ringo's on stage still doing jumping jacks at age 82. Meanwhile, at the end of the concert, everyone around me is ha struggling to get up off the grass because I just had a seat on the grass, you know. I don't yeah. like, you know, some people really needed help. And it's like, wow, I guess you never sit down on the the ground anymore. You know, they're all, <laughs> anyway. You know, these days when I go to a show, I'm no longer interested in standing on my feet with 30,000 of my best friends. Like, yeah. are there good seats there? Are they comfortable? Can yeah. we sit and show from them the whole time? That, that's what I really want at this age. 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, do you collect everything Beatles or just group stuff, or do you go into the solo years and everything like that? I've got a lot of Beatles material. I've always been a huge fan. Uh, I've got much of their solo work. Um, mm-hmm. Still, some things every now and then I'm like, I should pick that up. But, mm-hmm. you know, thanks to the internet, I can also listen to albums. Sure. I go to YouTube and hear it. And after having heard Dark Horse on YouTube, I don't know if I need to own Dark Horse. Um, <laughs> and then I would self, not a terrible album, but just his voice is so shot that it, it undermines all, all the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate them. I have books that, you know, all over the place. I, I don't have enough shelf space for all yeah. the books. Actually, I'll say something about Dark Horse since you mentioned that. So it's always been like one of my least favorite Harrison albums. I think I'd rather listen to Electronic Sound, but uh, <laughs> because his voice is so bad on most of the tracks, um, the the version I actually prefer because I'm dumb enough to rebuy it every time they reissue it um, is the latest one where they did a nice remaster of it, and I think that they worked on his vocal a little bit to kind of lose some of some of the rest yeah but i'm thinking now because my dream was before george passed is that he would like think twice about it and say you know i should go back and re-record the vocals on this album now that i have my voice again but he never did but i you know i'm not the hugest fan of ai but i understand its possibilities (laughs) and i said hmm they could do an ai version of dark Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm well, surprised you know, nobody's done it yet, but anyway. Shortly before his passing, he cut the new version of My Sweet Lord for yep. its 30th anniversary, and his voice at that point had really gone down, and it's almost sad to listen to it. Yeah, I wish he'd have done it a few years earlier before his health took such a downturn. And again, much like you, I remember thinking back in the 90s, He's not recording anything new right now. What a perfect opportunity to redo Dark Horse so people can really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and then, you know, I have listened to this. I mean, I even though I have certain opinions about AI, I'm curious. I'm just, you know. And so there's been some people that uh, had, they've taken McCartney's tracks from Egypt Station and McCartney 3 and new, and mm-hmm. they've kind of made his voice younger and less aged <laughs> and i hate to say it i really like what these people did he sounds like he's like 30 again and it's like oh my god you know it's like we're not well, supposed to like this <laughs> you know there, there's some question right now because apparently pendulette has heard the work in progress on now and then the new yep. song when you are doing mm-hmm. he says they used ai to de-age paul's voice but others are saying no they're using the vocal track Paul laid down back in the 90s during the anthology sessions and his voice was younger and stronger then. Mm-hmm. Either way, it's it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Um, if you've ever heard John's demo of Now and Then, mm-hmm. it's a really strong song. And it's yeah. a shame that he didn't record it himself for his solo work. And it's a shame that the Beatles didn't complete their recording in the 90s on it because it, yeah. I think it was a better song than Real Love. Yeah, It'd be nice to finally hear it. Yeah, I and for what I've heard is that George wasn't a big fan of it for whatever reason. Um, I kind of have my suspicions that George had enough Beatle reunion stuff 
and the tackling a third one was just too much. You figured, oh, I've already done two. Yeah. That could be an A side and a B side. I'm done. <laughs> it's like, and you know, probably didn't even think about, oh yeah, one goes on an anthology, one, two, and three, and blah blah blah. What's fascinating is that when John recorded his demo on a cassette, he wrote on the cassette for Paul. Yeah. When Bioko, he intended to offer it to Paul, say, would you like to finish this song up? Because he had spoken off and on for years about writing with Paul again. Yeah. And in the late 70s, he um, even gave a deposition. Mm -hmm. uh, the four Beatles sued the Beatlemania stage production. Yeah. And the grounds were, according to John, that we have plans to reunite, and this is muddying the, the marketplace. People are going to be confused whether we're Beatlemania or the Beatles. Right. Whether he was just saying that for the lawyers or not, the fact that he would even say that means it had to be something he'd thought about. Yeah. I think, my opinion, I mean, it's an opinion, obviously, we n never will know, but I mean, my opinion is they probably did plan eventually to do something. I can't see him going uh, their rest of their lives never, ever being curious themselves, you know, even, you know, just privately, just, hmm, I wonder what we'd sound like if we all four got together and tried something new. I mean, I... I don't I, think it been the Beatles. I think they've yeah. been like, that's too much baggage. Yeah. Well, let's be Johnny and the Moondogs again. Yeah. Just, just have fun. Yeah. No expectations. I, I, I kind of think, this is, you know, and I said this on one of the other recent Beatles shows, is that I kind of think that they would have eventually gotten around to doing the anthology whether they would have done it at that same time, who knows? But let's say they did. And of course, John would have been a part of it. And I think, I don't think that they would have turned out appreciable more music. But I think that, you know, the highlight always would have been is like they would have had a filmed appearance of them doing one last, you know, you know, go round. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with like uh, Paul Simon's One Trick Pony, which has. I, I think the final appearance of the Love and Spoonful, yes. you know, it kind I was of similar. That video last yeah. night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So similar to something like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the other thing I was going to say about um, the the only thing I can equate it to people always say, oh, if the Beatles stayed alive, they would have been like the Rolling Stones. I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I kind of equate it more like ABBA, you know, where. They just kind of ended. They never really said they broke up. I mean, I guess the Beatles did eventually say they broke up, but so did ABBA eventually. And yeah. then then they went through years of saying, ah, we'll never, ever get back together. And then they finally did. So, you know, it's like, you know, I figure that's probably more likely what yeah. the Beatles scenario would have kind of been like, you know, and, and you know, but. Who knows? I like you know? to think if John had lived and he'd taken part in the anthology project, I think he'd have been the one to say, let's go on a rooftop somewhere and do a couple songs. Yeah. <laughs> Unannounced, get the cameras rolling, and let's bookend. Or maybe do one of those wacky locations they said, like the Sahara Desert, or go, yeah. go to the moon or something. No. <laughs> the <laughs> Beatles on the moon. Yeah. Anyway. So, you know, of course, it's all speculation and everything. Um, what is your opinion on AI in regards to any use of it on a Beatles track with Paul or, and or Ringo's involvement? Well, uh, I'm going to reserve final judgment until I hear the song. But I, 
agree that AI is a useful tool. Mm -hmm. um, I do not think it should be relied upon the way you know some artists use it now to create art when it's just a computerized drawing. There, there's no creativity put into it. Right. And we're going to start getting music where they're, we're going to be hearing a lot of deceased artists playing new songs these days. I'm sorry to say. Yeah. Um, I hope the Beatles, Paul and Ringo, are going to kind of set a standard saying, use it sparingly, use it yeah. to clean up bad tape hiss, to bolster voices, to to help, uh, which they've been doing digitally for years anyway. Yeah. Um, but don't rely on it to create an entirely new song. And don't right. don't generate John and George's voices start to finish. Uh, because then that's you know, that's playing with a synthesizer. That's not that's not yeah. organic music. Yeah. I tend to agree. Um I on this now and then using that again as an example. I have no problem if they use it, you know, to a certain level. And because at least one, at least one Beatles is actually involved. Like if Capital or EMI or whatever label we're considering, Apple or whatever, just decides, oh, we're going to put out a new Beatle record from scratch. We're not going to involve Paul and Ringo. They're old news, and we'll just create something out of nothing. You know, thumbs down on that. But uh... well, you know, Paul and Ringo were involved with the Love soundtrack. Yeah. And that used early generation AI to help reorganize the music. And I thought it did a, a very impressive job. Yeah. Uh, won't replace the original songs, but right. in terms of how it was employed with the stage show, fantastic. Right. Good job. And, you know, for people who quibble, you know, well, the Beatles always embrace new technologies, mm -hmm. whether they used it forever on every one of the records. You know, I mean, you know, I'm sure even McCartney dabbled with the auto-tune when it first came out, but he didn't go so blatant like Cher did with Believe or something like, you know, whatever. But, He's you know, that for, like his work with the fireman. And yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I have no problem with them experimenting with new technologies, just see what it does. But to rely on it 100 percent, you know, I think that's kind of wrong. And funny you know people talk about how yo they did sergeant pepper they did it on two four track recorders they wired together which was amazing <laughs> they had to do things like that because emi wouldn't tell them oh we've got this 16 track recorder because they knew the beatles would take it and use it for six months and no one else could use it right <laughs> the beatles thought emi was just too cheap to buy new equipment emi was not just telling them oh we have this now yeah <laughs> well even abbey road didn't have you know 16 tracks you know was it eight at the end or you know, I believe it was eight, yeah. although I think they did like they did Sergeant Pepper, they wired two eight tracks together. Oh, okay. Okay. I wasn't uh, sure. But, but it was also their first use of the move synthesizer. Right, right. So, you know, and you know, like you, I like the love comp compilation, you know, and but I am glad that they keep the original versions available. And of course, we did talk earlier about what is the original version, the British one or the US one. Well, all of them have kind of been available and they've reissued the american versions on cd even the heavily echoed versions over the years so yes. you know or you can go back to the original vinyl or whatever you know so, vinyl is huge and they keep putting yeah. out new versions yeah so it's all there which you know that's what i'm happiest about it would kind of suck if they said well here's the beatles love and we're gonna delete this whole catalog yeah <laughs> it's like ah, what yeah and it's amazing that you know, in the long run, the Beatles didn't produce as much music as you might think an artist of their stature did. A little over 100 songs. 
Yeah. Uh, look at somebody like uh, Louis Armstrong. I mean, there are whole years of his career where you can't get that music these days. It's just nobody has it, has put it out right now. So there are right, gaps right. in his long history of music, which is horrifying because he created amazing music right from the start all the way to the end. Yeah. We're not going to have to worry about that with the Beatles. That stuff is always <laughs> going to be there. And it's nice to think about that immortality, that long after we're gone, the stuff we like now, that we like 50 years ago, is still going to be loved. Mm -hmm. now, going back to your book a little bit, probably should talk about it a little bit. <laughs> um, did you interview anybody uh, to get information? or how, 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 What was your approach to each chapter and how you wrote the book? There, unfortunately, uh, there aren't that many people available these days who were a part of all of that. Um, I had spoken with some people in the past. I picked up little nuggets of information here and there. Mm -hmm. um, I contacted a couple of artists who were hit makers in 64, and they were like, yeah, I'll talk with you, but I can't do it right now. And then as deadlines were passing, I'm like, I, I really can't wait any longer i'm sorry uh, i don't think it detracts from the book at all because the information i did find out about virtually everyone i wrote about um, in some instances the things that i've never seen collected all together in other books mm -hmm. and i've come across a couple of other facts that i've never read anywhere um i got them from contemporary news sources and mm -hmm. they were news at the time and then probably forgotten and the history book since then overlooked it all so i was very pleased to come across things like that hmm. okay. but mostly i i spent my time scouring newspapers magazines uh old interviews with others mm -hmm. um i guess can you reveal one of the nuggets that you uh found quite interesting that hasn't really been discussed yeah. elsewhere much i joke that my book is about 1964's heroes and villains and the villain turned out to be a hero uh, I'll talk about the villain who turned out to be a hero. Uh, Herman Kennan was the president of the American Musicians uh, Federation. American Federation Musicians, the Musicians Union. Mm -hmm. um, he took the job in the late 50s and inherited what he saw as uh, an interminable problem. Uh, Britain did not allow most American musicians to play in the UK. They said to do so would be to take working jobs away from British musicians. And as a result, with very few exceptions, uh, mostly classical musicians or you know, somebody of the stature of Louis Armstrong could come and play. When the jazz pianist Stan Kenton applied to, for a tour in Britain, he was turned down by the British Physicians Union. So he turned to his union and said, can you straighten this out with them? Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be a years long negotiation where basically the British Music Musicians Union didn't budge. Mm -hmm. uh, they really didn't give up any ground. And by 64, Herman Kennan was really tired of this. He wanted to change this. And when the British invasion happened, he saw his opportunity. Mm. And it was a brilliant plan. And he made himself a villain to, to accomplish it. Mm -hmm. He gave a uh, interview with a syndicated columnist where he, he said, the Beatles are not immortal to us. He said, you could find, I love this quote, you could find four kids in Yonkers or, or Tennessee who do the exact same thing they do. <laughs> he said, if they intend to come back to this country, they'll have to leave their instruments behind and just hire American musicians to play behind them. They'll set be a vocal group. Wow. <laughs> and he said, that same goes for all the other British groups. And this set off alarm bells in teenage America. 
they were like, what do you mean the Beatles and the Dave Clark Five and Herman's Hermits can't come to America? I want to see them. Yeah. Now, teenagers in 1964 couldn't vote. You had to be 21. Mm-hmm. But they could write letters to editors. They could write letters to the American <laughs> Federation physicians. They could write letters to their congressmen. 64 yeah. was an election year. Everybody in the House of Representatives was a free election. And a lot of congressmen started getting these angry letters from teenagers in their districts. <laughs> and they were like, what is this about? And, and at first they were inclined to dismiss it. And then they're like, wait a minute. What if my opponent can use this against me somehow? Mm-hmm. So a number of Democratic representatives passed the letters along to the White House and told President Lyndon Johnson, you settle this. So <laughs> President Johnson turned to his Secretary of Labor, Willard Wirtz, and said, you settle this. Yeah. The U.S. Labor Department then opened negotiations between the British Musician Union and American Federation Musicians and essentially said, okay, this ban on American musicians going to Britain and this reciprocal ban now the FM is threatening mm-hmm. comes to a halt now. Mm. Initially, the British Musicians Union said, no, we're sticking to our guns. Mm. But things had changed this time. Um, they were coming under a lot of pressure from sources that hadn't cared about this previously. Yeah. Um, you know, the head of EMI was Sir Joseph Lockwood, who had a lot of connections to the British government. Um, one of the investors in the Beatles uh, merchandising company was a member of royalty. So he had ties to the royal family. Mm-hmm. And of course, Britain was exporting millions of records around the world, thanks to the Beatles and others, and this was threatening to hamper that. And Britain was in a recession at the time. It's about the only bright spot in their economy were record sales. Mm. So the union came under huge pressure from various sources, and they capitulated completely. They said, fine, any American wants to come play here, they're welcome. Any Britain wants to go to the U.S., bon voyage. Mm. And as a result, British acts could then tour in the United States without worrying about being um, kicked out mm-hmm. and that was Herman Kenton's plan all along he played the bad guy in this knowing that he could get the ball rolling and get get things changed for the better he was willing to play the bad guy and I, I applaud him for that it was a brilliant strategy mm-hmm. and yeah you're right I have never heard that before <laughs> now that makes me wonder like um you see photos of like little Richard with the Beatles in England when they're touring around and a few other American acts. Uh, was that before this happened or after or how'd that yes, work? There, there wasn't a total ban. And if you were a name artist, Oh, okay. Um, you could usually get in, but there were certain restrictions on how many shows you could do. Yeah. Um, you, except in a few instances, had to have British musicians backing you. Yeah, I think Roy Orbison was another one that made yes. it over to, yeah. Yes, so um, there, there were some minor exceptions, but um, in many instances, artists were simply told, no, stay stay back in America, you're not welcome. Okay. I mean, I know the story with Elvis, that Colonel Tom Parker couldn't travel, you know. Yes. <laughs> so that wouldn't have been a uh, non-starter, but I'm wondering, had he been able to, if they would have allowed Elvis in, or if they would have put severe restrictions on him. I think they would have because Elvis would have been such a huge moneymaker that mm-hmm. everyone would have realized it'd be in everyone's best interest to let him come play in Britain. Okay, they would. Okay. All right. But, you know, <laughs> but... a jazz man like Stan Kenton was going to be playing small theaters. He was going to generate a lot of cash. So the union was like, no, you can't come. Okay. So prior to this agreement, they basically picked and choose 
picked and chose their battles, as it were. Yeah. And there was really no rhyme or reason. Right. Okay. Um, do you think that plays along to, you know, McCartney loves to say the story, which is questionable sometimes, it wouldn't matter what story, depending on what source you read, is he always says, well, you know, we wouldn't have gone, we didn't want to go to America unless we had a number one. But, you know, apparently the Ed Sullivan deal was already in the pro- planning even before they had a number one. So kind of hard to say what is exactly correct on that. But going with Paul's thing, do you think that? that ban is why artists like Cliff Richards had no chance in America because they were kind of banning British acts pre-Beatles? I think it wouldn't have mattered so much on the American side if Cliff Richard had come over. I don't understand why Cliff Richard wasn't having hits in America. He was having number one hits in Britain from 1959, and he's he's still a top 40 presence in the UK to this day. Mm Mm-hmm. Put on some really good music, and other than a couple of minor top forty hits, yeah, um, he couldn't get arrested in the U.S. until the late seventies when he had a couple of songs in the top ten, right? But, and I don't understand why he didn't connect with American audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe if he had been had toured, he could have he could have built up interest. But I think his feeling was, I'm really busy everywhere else in the world. I mean, yeah. I have <laughs> country. And yeah. I sell out stadiums. Why do I want to go to America and beg for an audience? Right. I'm I'm wondering if, you know, Elvis had anything to do with that, even indirectly, you know, because Elvis is around till the late 70s. And then, you know, once he's gone, oh, we can bring in Cliff Richards and have some hits now. I don't know. It's probably coincidence, you know. You, but, you know, I would say that there are probably a lot of people who like Elvis who also like Cliff Richards' music. I think yeah. They're compatible with each other. I think a lot of people who like Ricky Nelson would have liked Cliff if they'd have gotten exposure to him. Yeah. But they, they didn't, so they, they didn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing else I saw in your book, um, flipping through, is you know you do cover various news articles which were kind of important during uh, that calendar year and even before, uh, like John, uh, JFK's assassination, things like that. How how do you feel that all this played together in making the British invasion happen? You can't overstate the impact of the assassination on the American psyche. Um, I think in retrospect, people think, well, everybody was just in deep despair. No, actually, people tried to get back to normal. Uh, the biggest hit movies in the weeks after the assassination were comedies under the young elm tree, and it's a mad, 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 mad world. So <laughs> yeah. have to laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, the second biggest song of the Christmas holiday season was Louie Louie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, but there was nevertheless this gray pall that kind of settled over everything. Yeah. And I think a lot of people were kind of mentally holding their breath, waiting for the next shoe to drop. What's going to happen next? Mm-hmm. Prepared for something terrible to happen. But mm-hmm. instead, here is this burst of joy coming out of their car radios that just. Mm-hmm excites them it gets the pulse pumping yeah i think people just exhaled collectively and just said okay this is a good thing yeah and it was one of those instances of circumstances falling like dominoes and things you couldn't predict happening all coming together at the exact right moment Mm -hmm. Um, you know you mentioned about paul talked about well we didn't want to come unless we had number one hit song they hoped they had a number one hit song, but the fact right. is, when they signed the contract to appear in Ed Sullivan, 
they couldn't even get a major label in America to release their stuff. I right. Mean, they they were on VJ for a couple of releases and that really went nowhere. Then they got put on the Tiny Swan label, which put <laughs> on She Loves You, which should have been a number one song to anyone who heard it. <laughs> yeah. It flopped. Um, they got signed to do the Ed Sullivan Show, and that actually helped them convince Capitol to sign them and said, look, we're doing three weeks on the Sullivan Show. People are going to want to listen to our music. You need yeah. to put on an album. Yeah. Capitol, and again, for whatever reason, uh, you know, Dave Dexter and, and uh, Ellen Livingston, the president, had previously turned down the Beatles. They, yeah. they were jazz guys. They didn't know rock. <laughs> um, but they, they <laughs> year earlier, it said, no, we don't want them on the label. Mm-hmm. And now they they give it another list. They say, you know what? We can make this work. And they budgeted uh, an unheard of $50,000 for a marketing campaign. Mm-hmm. Really pushed the Beatles. And it was really innovative. I mean, everything from in-store displays, which were fairly common, uh, to stickers that got plastered on every flat surface in America over the Christmas season. Except it was a, a drawing of a, a Beatle haircut, a pixie haircut. And simply said, the Beatles are coming. And I have to wonder how many people thought, who are these Beatle girls? Right, right. Um, yeah. But the most innovative investment they made was it was Capital who were behind the manufacturer of Beatle Wings. Mm-hmm. And so they flooded stores with those. And now, you know, these boys who had flat tops and suddenly they see the Beatles shaking their hair and they're like, I want hair like that. Right. <laughs> Take me four months to grow it. But in the meantime, I'll put this wig on. Yeah. And, and you know, just the circumstances that all fell together. Um, Capital had not planned to release "I Want to Hold Your Hand" until the middle of January. That's what all their marketing was geared for. Mm-hmm. EJ in Washington D.C. had a request from a listener. Um, they'd seen a news report about the Beatles. Said, "I'm interested in the music. Can you play something?" He knew a stewardess for British Airways. He said, "Next time you do a round trip, will you bring me something?" She came back the next week and said, "Here's their new single." He started playing it. Started getting a huge response from listeners. Mm-hmm. Rival radio stations taped it off his radio broadcast and started playing it. Um, <laughs> Capital was was panicking because this was not in their plan. This right. this early December and not middle of January. And they actually called the radio stations to cease and desist. Mm. <laughs> wow! Said, your minds. Yeah. Want to hear this song? We're going to play it. Yeah. So Capital then said, "All right, you can't beat them. Join them." Uh, yeah. They, Called the pressing plants and they said, Stop everything else you're, you're printing up for us. We need, I want to hold your hand. We need, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies of this by New Year's. Right. And they pumped it out into the market. And as a result, by the end of January, when initially Capital expected the song might be, you know, getting close to the top 40 and it's climbed to the top, it was number one. Yeah. So the Beatles had their number one hit song when they appeared on Ed Sullivan the week, the next week. Yeah. It's just kind of amazing that that the synchronicity of it all, you know, yeah. but, you know, it, it is, it just happened. Yeah. And, you know, it's fun to listen to Paul's story, but yeah, you have to listen to all the background behind it, you know, and then those other labels, of course, VJ and Swan, their records previously doing nothing zoomed to the top too. So, you know, VJ definitely profited from that because uh, yeah. they were in severe financial straits. So much so that their biggest act, the Four Seasons, had left the label because they hadn't been receiving their royalties. Right. <laughs> well, now VJ had you know this this album's worth of Beatles songs, which they proceeded to release in multiple different packaging throughout the year, mm-hmm. um, and they were selling millions of copies of it. 
even something as as head scratching as uh, Jolly What, England's biggest hit makers, the Beatles <laughs> and Frank Ifa, who's a yodeler. Uh-huh. Yeah. There are only a couple of Beatles songs, and the rest were Frank Ifield. And I think a lot of fans felt gypped when they got that album. Yeah. Um, but Capitol, of course, promptly sued BJ. They said, you yeah. lost your contract last year. You can't put this out. BJ said, well, stop us. Yeah. And eventually the courts said, BJ, you stop. Yeah. I think it's funny that BJ had the 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 balls, at least, <laughs> or just the cleverness, <laughs> to be more polite, <laughs> to... Uh, Put out basically the same album in at least three or four different incarnations. You know, is the Beatles versus the Four Seasons, and they paired it up with Four Seasons Greatest Hits and uh, songs, pictures, stories of the Beatles, and I forgot the other couple. You know, and of course, introducing the Beatles is what the original one was, and uh, then they, you know, it's it's weird that they managed to get anything out because they're in so much trouble with Capital. They had to pull off Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You and replace it and and weird things like that. And it's like well, they, they actually at one point created a new subsidiary label called Tolly. Oh yeah. <laughs> the Beatles songs on there, apparently thinking they could fool capital. They're like, oh, that's not BJ. That's another label entirely. <laughs> well, I'm sure uh, you know, it's like Capital wasn't Capital would have gone over everybody because I mean I think they went after Swan too for She Loves You, and then she and Swan says, hmm, well, they they don't have the rights to the German version. Let's put that one out. You know, yes. didn't do anything. But... Capital seized. They yeah. took that as well. <laughs> uh, so, they was, tried. <laughs> Very clever. Blood of of anything Beatles related, Beatles adjacent, anything that can claim to be somehow connected with the Beatles, all found its way into vinyl in the United States. Um, yeah. You know the stuff they did in '61 and '62 in, in Germany with Tony Sheridan, My Bonnie. Yeah. Um, that got released by MGM, who of course marketed it as by Bonnie by the Beatles. Oh yeah, big book letters. <laughs> and it was a hit. You know, it was the Ain't She Sweet song the Beatles had recorded, just kind of as a knockoff at that time. It was a top ten hit in the US. Yep. <laughs> um, and some people who later became big stars. You know, there was a song uh, by a young Bonnie Joe Mason, which was the stage name of Cher. Yeah. Who put out a song that was, I think it was I Love You Ringo. Yeah. And there was an obscure group called the Photo 5 4, <laughs> which was actually Harry Nielsen. Mm. Um, and those songs didn't go anywhere, but nevertheless, it shows you the demand, the insatiable demand oh, yeah. in those, those early years of, of the early months of the British invasion for all things Beatles. Yeah. Well, you know, as we were talking earlier about the Hard Day's Night soundtrack, they even put those George Martin instrumentals out as singles, too. And the singles, most people don't care about them, but they like the picture, picture sleeves because, of course, they put pictures of the Beatles on the yes. singles. So, you know. Uh, I think at the end of the summer of 64, you had a Hard Day's Night as number one album. Something New was the number two album. Mm-hmm. Also in the top ten were Meet the Beatles and the Beatles' second album. Mm-hmm. And filling out the rest of the top 40 was introducing the Beatles. And then Beatle Jason albums like um, Hear the Beatles Tell All, which was actually just uh, audio interviews they had done, no right. music. Uh, there was um, the Holly Ridge Strings, which was oh, yeah. an instrumental group doing the Beatles hits. 
Mm-hmm. And then my personal favorite, the chipmunks sing the Beatles hits. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're all top 40 albums at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the, the demand for all things Beatles was just incredible. Yeah. Now, I do have a couple of stories in those. I'll say the chipmunks one. So uh, Ross Bagdasarian actually did meet with Brian Epstein, at least. Uh, I don't know if he met with the Beatles himself to get permission to do that. So he didn't just throw out a knockoff album. He actually sought permission to do it. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, and then it's the first Chipmunks album that he didn't sing the songs. He had this other group, which I forgot the name. It's it's in my book. I did Chipmunks book. That's how I know this. Um, that did they sang the theme song for the second and third season on Gilligan's Island. So they had the harmonies and everything. They did the Chipmunks vocals on that album because Ross didn't have the pipes to do all those harmonies and high voices. He smoked too much and stuff like that. So, yeah. So that's that album. Then the other one was uh, what was the one you just said? Um, Holly Ridge uh, Strings. I just found this out, and I didn't even know this. Um, Stu Phillips was interviewed by Charles Rosney recently. I got him the interview because I did a monkeys book and interviewed Stu Phillips, who did the incidental music on the monkeys. He also did those Holly Ridge Strings albums. He arranged right. them and conducted them and everything like that. Uh, he revealed on this recent interview. He's like 93 now. He said uh, the label he was on uh, was like, what are you doing doing those Holly Ridge Strings albums for Capital? You're supposed to be working here. <laughs> you know, and uh, he was working for Col- uh, Picks and Cold Gems and, you know, those RCA uh, released albums. And then he said, get back over here. And then they did eventually do uh, a Monkees instrumental album they took control of, but you know, it's it's funny because yeah, those uh, Hollywood Strings albums did really well. They even put a snippet of it on the Beatles story. You know, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. well, there was money to be made, and money was made. Yeah. <laughs> so, any other little highlights or tidbits before we kind of wrap up and everything like that? That that should be yeah. entice yeah. people to buy your book. <laughs> well, one of the things I discussed is how. Um, Recording artists were kind of shafted, well, to this day, kind of shafted by their record labels. Mm-hmm. You know, the Beatles sold 25 million records in the United States in 1964. Mm-hmm. But to put that into better perspective, they earned a half cent a record. And on every half cent, Brian Epstein, their manager, took 25%. The remainder of that, they had to split four ways. So even all these millions of records being sold, the Beatles were not getting rich from record sales. Farthings. <laughs> John and Paul were making pretty good bank from writing their songs and they owned the the rights to their songs. So they were doing okay with that. But really the only money that that musicians were making was from live performances. And the mentality for records for the longest time, really until the 60s, was that you did records to promote your touring. Mm -hmm. You, You want to have hits on the radio so people will come buy tickets to your live show. Mm-hmm. Uh, that started to change in the 60s when people realized or musicians were like, no, this is my art and I yeah. want the music and the vinyl to be important. So the Beatles had to tour. Um, they did a tour in the summer of 64 in the United States. They charged $50,000 a performance. So they were making pretty good money off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but this introduces somebody who, who I've never seen mentioned in anything else. And I tried so hard to find her since. She's fallen off the face of the earth. But my biggest hero of the British invasion is a woman named Cappy Ditson. Hmm. Cappy Ditson 
um, was an agent at the Red Carpet Travel Service of New York City. Mm -hmm. Usually booked American families on cruises and, and excursions to Europe. And hey, you want to go down to Disneyland in California? We could we could book that for you. She gets a call two weeks before the Beatles tour is supposed to start, saying, "We don't know how to put this tour together." You know, unlike every other artist before who would play big theaters, so we're playing baseball stadiums. <laughs> we don't know how to make this happen. Cappy said, "I'm on it." Hmm. Weeks later, when the tour started, Cappy had everything worked out. Every plane ticket, all the transportation, made sure the Beatles, their entourage, their amps, their instruments, their luggage, made it from the airport to the hotel to the stadium, then back to the next city. Um, there were no hitches whatsoever. She had it all planned out to a T. And the plan she worked up is essentially the plan every major artist uses to this day. Hmm. It's the Ditson plan. And she has completely disappeared in the mists of time. I don't think wow. she has any idea of her importance to rock and roll. <laughs> I think she should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. Based she on that, yeah. <laughs> how we see artists live in concert. Interesting. I'll have to do a little research, see if I can dig something up. Yeah. Uh, uh, you didn't find anything in newspapers, or you did, and it was just I a little scoured, blur? Or... I scoured newspapers.com, archive.org. Mm -hmm. um, Everything I could find. I have old phone books, mm. uh, the Social Security Register. Can't find it. Now, I'm assuming Cappy is a nickname, mm -hmm. which is why it's so difficult finding where she went to. Right. Uh, but the only thing I learned about her was she gave one interview, I think in, might have been Billboard, mm -hmm. in 1964, discussing what she did and all the details of the tour together. It's the only reason I know about Cappy. Wow. I wonder if Billboard would know, but it's only so long ago they probably don't. I don't know. I reached out to Billboard to try and get some other information, and they essentially said, "Yeah, whatever we have, we put it online. Nobody here keeps track of that stuff anymore." Yeah. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> get uh, Bruce Spicer or Mark Lewis in on the on the beat. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, Bruce yeah. maybe we, he could he could maybe track that down personally. I don't know. Yeah. I, British, right? I don't know if he wants to. Yeah, smoke. he's he's yeah. on the British side. He doesn't care about the invasion. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, I don't know if that's true, but anyway, um, all right. Um, well, you know, but uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Um, let's do just like one more quick plug. Hold up the book. Uh, mention how people can get in contact with you if they want to ask you questions, or if you have any websites or anything else you want to promote. Well, I'm on Facebook under Gene Popa Author. Okay. Um, this is the book right here, British Invasion, available from Bear Manor Media as uh, in hardcover, paperback, and uh, as an e-reader. I should say there were also plans to put out uh, an audio book, and it would have been done now, uh, but my narrator is in a guild that is uh, sympathizing with the SAG after strike, so they are not working, and I fully support the strike, so I told them doesn't matter. We can, we can do it whenever you're ready to go. So okay. at some point there will be an audio book. That'll be a bonus later on. <laughs> yes. Now the book, um, ample photos in here. Photos that for the most part I've not seen anywhere else. I mostly use newspaper clippings and advertisements and things that generally don't get used in books. Yeah. So I want to yeah. get something different there. 
Yeah, I was going to comment on that. I didn't. I'm sorry. But yeah, I thought that was a nice touch because and you didn't just put Beatles ads. There's ads for Scylla Black and uh, all the other artists and everything that came through. Well, one of my favorites was there's an ad that VJ put out. Oh, yeah. You can talk about that. They were bragging about how, you know, we're now the seventh biggest record company in America, thanks to the Beatles. And I bet that's driving the the big guys wild. And of course, you see a drawing of a pair of hands tearing a Capitol Records order sheet in half. Yeah. And and that was them just poking the bear. Yeah. But also, they they misspelled Capitol to Capitol, which is money. So I thought that was a very clever touch. (laughs) Capitol Records. (laughs) So. Much cleverness for over those people over at BJ. You know, it's like they certainly knew how to kind of wrangle little deals and side things and everything like that to get the well, job. They were done, clever so. enough to actually have their record company be profitable. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond the Beatles. <laughs> how do you not make money selling Four Seasons records? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you hit the nail on the head for the last statement about the Four Seasons is that they were getting paid. So they're going to leave. So, you know, it's like, because had they stayed, you know, they had a number of hits on Phillips and the other labels later. So it's like, you know. <laughs> but it didn't stop BJ continuing to put out Four Seasons records, still having top 40 hits with them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> stuff, let's, let's use it. Yeah. But all record labels tended to do that. It's like if somebody had a hit and they had something in the archives, like Aretha Franklin is an example. When she had hits at Atlantic, Columbia went, oh, we have a bunch of records here. Let's put those out. You know. Anyway. I think an instance where it really worked out well would be um, when the Hollies left EMI in the early oh, yeah. I forget who they went with. It may have been Mercury. Uh, when they were putting out their new, their next album on their new label, EMI decided to try and undercut them by putting out a previously recorded song by the Hollies, and that song happened to be "Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress," which mm. hadn't done anything previously. Well, now it was a huge hit, and it's a, one of the best-known songs by the Hollies. So I don't think the Hollies were too upset that EMI did that. <laughs> as long as they get paid for it, you know. Yeah. They, you know, I'm sure, like, you know, we mentioned the Beatles ones, those Tony Sheridan ones. I don't know if they saw much money from those, so they were probably like... <laughs> I'm sure they saw nothing, because there was yeah. only one original song in that batch, and that was Cry for a Shadow, an instrumental yeah. by George, which yeah. was finally packaged as part of the anthology. But yeah, other than that, I think they... Even if they got paid at the time, which I doubt, I think they just did it as a favor. Yeah. They didn't get anything later yeah. on. It might have been a session fee at best. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know the story. I doubt even <laughs> One last question. Um, uh, any what, any other books in the planning? Yes. I'm currently writing. That you can talk about? <laughs> the Beatles. Okay. Um, it is going to focus on a span of their career that doesn't always get a lot of focus. Um, it tends to get glossed over just because where it falls. And that is from the end of touring in August of 66 to the release of Sgt. Pepper. Now, the recording of Pepper gets a lot of coverage. But that those months leading up to it kind of get glossed over in a lot of biographies of the band. And it's really a fascinating period. They went, they left touring and went into this period almost entirely convinced among themselves that the Beatles were done. Right. Because they're like, all right, we're not going to tour anymore, but touring is what a band does. What are we if we don't tour? Right. And so they kind of all went their own separate ways for a few months and did individual things and then came together and said, 
what do you think, lads? You want to see what we can do? And they hunkered down and gave us Sergeant Pepper and Penny Lane and Strawberry Field. So they did all right for themselves. But <laughs> most most books tend to be all about the summer of 66, the, the nightmare tour and the release of Revolver. Right. Then you jump to Pepper. And that entire nine-month period in between gets a paragraph or two. That sounds interesting. Yeah, looking forward to it. So, All right. Well, I want to thank Eugene Popa for being my special guest. And when the when the next Beatles book is ready, uh, come on back, <laughs> or you can come on back anyway. If probably you know we could just chat about the Beatles or anything you want to talk about. Um, <laughs> and I uh, thank you very much again. And this has been another Fun Ideas podcast, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Gene Popa, for being my special guest. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number two thirty will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.